You're listening to Preservation Destination, the podcast where we explore the history of the built environment. Whether you are a preservation pro, dabbler, or just into fascinating history, you are in the right place. Join our host, Taylor Volz, as she interviews experts in the field of preservation as they pass their knowledge on to us. And here is your host of Preservation Destination, Taylor Volz. Welcome to the first episode of Preservation Destination. Today our guest is Sarah Myers, owner and operator of Vertigree Preservation. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Sure. So let's get started. Uh, Please tell our listeners a little bit about your company and what it is that you do. So Vertigree Preservation is focused on the, the restoration of old historic windows. That's our primary thing. A little bit doors and shutters as well, but for the most part, it's windows. Making them function again, renewing the glazing, adding weather stripping, that sort of thing. And how did you get started in this field? I got started in construction right out of college when I didn't want to be in uh, school anymore and I didn't want to be in an office because I'd done that during the summers and didn't enjoy it. So kind of on a whim, I answered an ad for Carpenter's Helper and um, went on to do framing for a couple of years. I've always had an interest in recycling and things like that, so um, eventually I got into construction recycling and then architectural salvage, and that led me to restoring windows. Oh, wow. So no formal education, just basically. Yeah, no, uh, I don't have a master's in historic preservation, but at this point I have almost 20 years in construction and construction-related fields. Yeah, I, I would definitely say that you're one of our local pros for sure. <laughs> um, so how, how did you get down to New Orleans since you're not originally from here? Well, at the time, I was working for UNC Chapel Hill in North Carolina, which is where I'm from, and I was doing I was managing their construction recycling program. They had a huge capital campaign and a local recycling ordinance that they had to comply with, and so it was my job to sort of make that happen and keep track of it. And, you know, there were things about that job I liked, but uh, sitting at a computer for eight hours a day was not really one of them. And I started coming down here in 2008 to volunteer doing historic green rebuilding in the Lower Ninth Ward with a nonprofit organization called Historic Green. And I came down and I remembered how much I enjoyed swinging a hammer and I fell in love with the city and I just kept coming back until I moved here. And when did you move here? I moved here in 2011, so it's it's been eight years or seven years. Okay, okay, so a few years after I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, when you when you finally made the big move and decided to stay here, what what did you do first when you first came? Uh, in terms of work, yeah. At first, I actually worked for the Preservation Resource Center. I worked for Rebuilding Together, and I supervised the architectural salvage crew. So we would go and pick up materials and salvage materials from building that would then be sold at the the salvage store. And then from there, you... Then from there, that's when I got into restoring windows through some... I got laid off by the PRC, and then just by networking with people I knew from volunteering, I got connected to... Sam Staub, who was interested in adding a window restoration and weather stripping component to his contracting business, and I ended up working for him for four years. 
And so now he's got Staub Windows Restoration? That's correct, yeah. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've seen them around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, so you worked for them for four years, and then you decided to branch out and start your own company? Yeah, I worked for him, and then um, I actually spent about nine months working for Bill Robinson with uh, Historic 504 Windows, also Train to Rebuild. And, you know, he is one of my mentors and a really, really good friend of mine, but we discovered that working together wasn't exactly the right thing for us. Mm-hmm. So it was after that that I just decided to, to start up my own thing. Great. And you've been doing that for how long? I've had my company for coming up on a year and a half now, so it's still relatively new. And then you also work with... Uh, Yeah, and part-time I work with Bayou Preservation, which is a company run by Michelle Duhon that uh, restores tombs and monuments locally. I met Michelle... The same, doing the same volunteering thing, Historic Green, and she started her company about six years ago now and got to a point where she needed some help and asked if I wanted to help. And so, yeah, I've been working for her for about six years now. She seems like a very nice person. Hopefully we'll get to have her on the podcast too. (laughs) I'm sure. She's a wonderful boss and uh, a great person, and I try and model myself after her in terms of working with other people. When you're working here in New Orleans on on windows or shutters, I know you do that too, Mm -hmm. what are some of the, what makes working here different than working in other places as far as climate? What are some of the unique challenges that that you face when in in New Orleans? Yeah, so in New Orleans, I mean, this is not going to be news to anyone, but humidity and moisture are the things that we really have to deal with. And a lot of the the building science comes out of either the Northeast or California. And they have very different climates Mm -hmm. compared to, you know, what we're dealing with. Um, So that affects how you want to deal with humidity. I mean, here it's just, it's coming from the outside all the time. Mm -hmm. Whereas in winter up north, you have humidity on the inside from people breathing and using water that's trying to get outside. And we really don't have that down here. So whenever I'm around other, you know, colleagues in my profession, I'm always the one raising my hand and saying, but what about if it's really humid? And (laughs) but what about if we have like you have a, you know, a huge thunderstorm every day? And so planning for humidity and thunderstorms and hurricanes, that's, you know, something that we deal with here that uh, some of my colleagues elsewhere don't. Mm -hmm. I spent some time um, in upstate New York over the Christmas holiday and they had a lot of snow. And uh, it was uh, in a home that was built in the 1880s, and it was interesting to see what they had to do to deal with that type of weather versus the way the houses are built here. And for me, it was it was a real eye-opener, you know, the, the differences that you see. So I can I can definitely understand that. If, if, if all the science is coming from there, it does make a big difference mm-hmm. yeah. um, in terms of region. So what do you like the best about what you do? What I like best about what I do is uh, the deep sense of satisfaction from making something work again, having, you know, real tangible, visible results at the end of the day. You know, when I had an office job, there's a lot of spreadsheets, there's a lot of this, that, and the other, and that's something that I personally had a hard time getting excited about and staying excited about. 
But, you know, at the end of the day, when I've reglazed a window or I've added weather stripping so it glides smoothly up and down, you know, that there's no argument about that. I made a thing better. And to me, that's really satisfying. Yeah, it's that sense of accomplishment that mm-hmm. you, you've created something that works and it's functional. You can see where it's going going to go from here yeah. versus working in an office. I, I, I totally understand that. I get that. <laughs> um, so uh, I was stalking your business's Facebook page, <laughs> and I saw that last fall, in last September, you went to, you called it a window camp. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, last September I went to, and I may not get the name exactly right, it was the Window Preservation Standards Collaborative Summit Number 3. So this is just a a gathering of window professionals from all over the states. I think we might have had one or two people from Canada who get together and collectively discuss best practices, and they actually have um, a standards guide that they are trying to get into the hands of all the, you know, preservation nonprofits and, and contractors that they can across the country. And since I began working on Windows, this was my first chance to really be in that large of a group of my um, colleagues and peers. And it was really wonderful. Everybody was very generous and respectful, you know, even though I hadn't been doing it a fraction as long as as some people. There are people who've been doing this for decades. Um, I never felt like they didn't respect my knowledge base or my experience. Would you say that that's something that someone who doesn't have that much experience could still gain to go to an event like that? Oh, absolutely. Because not only not only do you learn from the sessions themselves, but you know you make these connections, and then you know a lot of a lot of my colleagues in the window world are extremely generous with their knowledge and you know they just they just want all the windows to be taken care of in the best way possible so you know it's not really a a sense of of competition i've found people to be very generous with their their knowledge and their time are there any other ways that you work on expanding your skills besides going to seminars or conferences we well as a lot of the same people are in a couple of different facebook groups so that is one place where you know it's good to check in and see what people are working on or somebody will you know put up a little poll or you know how do you deal with this how do you deal with that and so that's a nice sort of instantaneous way and then of course there are our books and resources some of them written by folks who are at that uh, particular conference um, which are good reference materials to to check in with and have on hand for specific issues and, and also just an overall background, you know? Mm-hmm. Everyone has their own ways. I mean, that was definitely one of the lessons I learned at the conference is you ask how to do a thing and you're going to get 10 or 12 different sure. ways of doing it, you know? Everyone has their favorite paint, their favorite, you know, uh, method for bedding, method for glazing, all that kind of stuff. So in a way, that's also really important because you learn that you have to build your own experience and make your own decisions. You know, there's not one like perfect right way to do everything. There's a variety of of strategies and materials and techniques that may be appropriate for different situations and different climates. Sure. Yeah, I think definitely when working with with older buildings, 
you know, you have to be creative because it's not standardized and things are different sizes and different shapes and every house has been through a different lifetime of, you know, people messing with things <laughs> or not messing with them depending on the situation. So, mm-hmm. well, I, I know you mentioned uh, glazing. In, in case we have any listeners that aren't familiar with, with some of those terms that you mentioned, could you kind of explain what that means? Yeah, when I talk about glazing, I'm referring to glazing putty. It is a the material that the glass is embedded in. So the window has a sort of an L-shaped recess that the glass sits in. And so you put glazing putty in that little L-shaped thing, which is called the rabbit or the rebate. And then it's pushed down into that and held in place with pins or points, glazers points, and then you put more glazing putty on top, and then you tool a nice straight line. So when you look at a window and you see this sort of diagonal line from the glass itself to the wood, what you're looking at generally is that glazed and paint, that uh, cured and and painted over um, window glazing putty. Okay. And traditionally, it was made from linseed oil and whiting. In some places, they did, at certain points, they would put in things like lead or asbestos, those high-performing, dangerous materials (laughs) that we all have a love-hate relationship with. And the putty that I personally use hues very closely to the original whiting and um, linseed oil recipe. Okay. So that way, it, it provides like a solid seal around the glass from inside to out and keeps water from getting in. Keeps moisture from seeping in, which, as we all know, is a problem down mm-hmm. here. Definitely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Can you tell us some of the more common abuse and misuse that you see from historic windows? Yeah, so we have so many historic windows in this town, and a lot of them have really been neglected throughout the years for one reason or another. And the people who've worked on them, whether it was DIY or your local handyman, didn't really know how to work with them appropriately. So the biggest reasons for failure that we see are, number one, paint not being properly maintained. That is the first line of defense against moisture. And so if your paint is peeling, if the people who painted it, if they go back and clean up with a a single blade razor and break that connection between the paint and the glass at the glazing putty, then the water gets behind it. And a lot of painters just don't know that the paint is actually supposed to lap onto the glass like a sixteenth of an inch. So once that paint starts failing, then your wood starts rotting you know, if it gets behind the glazing putty, the wood will swell and it'll pop the glazing putty out and make that fail too quickly. One of the other biggest things we see is the glazing putty failed and somebody went back with caulk. I'd like to make a PSA that caulk <laughs> is not an appropriate material for glazing windows. The most commonly available caulk that you're going to buy at Home Depot or, or Lowe's or wherever is, you know, commonly referred to as painter's caulk. And it's only about 50% solids. And what that means is when it cures, it shrinks. And when it shrinks, it leaves a gap. So that's why, you know, your painters come and they caulk the living daylights out of everything and it looks great. And then six months later or years later, suddenly you have cracks everywhere. A lot of people use silicone. Everybody I know in the window industry hates it. 
because once it cures, it's impossible to get off and nothing will stick to it, including new silicone. So it's, it's really sort of a nightmare. And I myself am really tied to the, the idea of having one solid seal of one material going all the way around the glass. Another common issue with paint is that people paint the hardware. You should not be painting your locks. You should not be painting your pulleys. And you absolutely should not be painting your sash cords. The sash cord is the the rope that attaches from the sash to the weight that's in the wall and that counterbalances the weight of the window. And when you paint those cords, they will, again, fail and break. It makes them brittle. So uh, it shortens the life of, of the sash cord. And uh, once it snaps, then your window won't stay up and you won't be able to use it. You know, you have to get in there with a ruler or another block or, or something and <laughs> that's not really safe so yeah we we were talking earlier I currently have a broken sash cord on on one of our living room windows here so I'm gonna have Sarah check some stuff out when we get done (laughs) with this podcast so I think that's a pretty good segue into our next segment that I want to ask you about which is my favorite hot button topic and I think for a lot of preservationists it is replacement doors and windows A lot of old houses suffer from an affliction that I like to refer to as Home Depot doors and windows. And uh, it it is definitely one of my biggest pet peeves to see, uh, you know, just walking around to see those prefab things trying to fit into a a unique space where they don't really belong. So you can tell us a little bit about why maybe those replacement windows aren't the best thing for your historic house. So there's a number of reasons. The joke about them in my industry and in the window restoration industry is that they're called replacement windows because you have to keep replacing them. (laughs) The windows in a lot of these New Orleans houses, most of them are made from old growth cypress, which is, you know, a local wood. It is relatively soft, but it's highly resistant to moisture and to insects. It's lightweight, which is nice. And and they've survived even through a whole lot of neglect for, you know, 100, 200 years. And the nice thing about them, too, is that they were designed to be repaired. So if one component fails, if one piece of wood rots, you can take the window apart, you can mill a new piece, and you can put it back in, and your window can continue on for another 100, 200 years. Modern replacement windows aren't made that way. They're a unit. You stick them in as a unit. Uh, They come out as a unit. So if one thing fails, you've got to replace the whole thing. It's really a struggle for us because there's, you know, billboards all over that say, Window World, $199. And there's a, a degree of education that we have to do with homeowners to talk to them about why their windows are worth more than that. I was doing a job actually for a realtor and working on some windows of hers and her husband half jokingly suggested replacing them with vinyl windows and she shot him a look that would peel paint (laughs) and said the value of our house would drop by 30% instantly. Mm -hmm. So it will damage the resale value of your home from a, you know, a philosophical standpoint. It's, it's, you know, a break in the historic fabric, 
even if you get expensive custom-made wood windows, the quality of the wood is generally not going to be as high as old growth wood. That's wood that was trees that were allowed to grow slowly and naturally over hundreds and hundreds of years, as opposed to now on tree farms where the trees grow very quickly and that makes the wood weaker. So yeah, there's just, I cannot ever in good conscience recommend replacement windows. And in addition to that, you know, a lot of times they just aren't designed right. You see these these obvious errors in design that cause them to fail in a number of years. That one house I was working on with the realtor, she had a number of, you know, high quality wood replacement casement windows, but they were designed so that there was a just a one eighth inch wide flat surface right next to the glass. And so any kind of condensation, any kind of rain just rolls down and it just sits there on that narrow little shelf and eventually it soaks in and they were all failing at the same point, mm. like pretty much all of them. So, you know, if you, if, if you go to somebody and you, a contractor goes to a homeowner and says, your whole, whole roof's got to be replaced. Every homeowner knows, okay, this is going to be, you know, a lot of money. This is going to, because that's really important. But they're not used to thinking of their windows in that way. And windows are, they're little mechanical systems. And they are a penetration in the building fabric, which is a fancy word for a hole in your wall. (laughs) And so, you know, it takes a lot of time and careful work in order to make them work correctly. And, you know, replacement windows, even if they are designed correctly, even if they are made of high quality materials, the people installing them don't always know how to do it properly. They don't know how to flash the openings to keep moisture from getting underneath the sill and rotting out the framing. So yeah, there's I could go on and on about why replacement windows aren't aren't the way to go. I know I know it's a it's tempting, right? Because they, right. they have this... Very like, popular. Very popular. You know, they, the companies have big advertising budgets, and they make it real easy for you to make that choice, but it's not the right choice to make. So, you know, if if the words of wisdom from a professional here aren't enough to convince you, there was a recent article on Forbes.com that stated... Um, replacement windows can take up to 20 years or more to reach the initial investment break-even point. And usually by then, they need to be replaced again. So you're, you're really not saving what you think you're saving by replacing your windows, especially if your home is going to be a long-term investment for you that you're going to stay in for that amount of time. And uh, the National Trust did a study in 2016 conducted by Preservation Green Lab that stated the energy performance of a properly properly repaired original window comes very close to that of replacement windows at a fraction of the cost. So there's right. plenty of yeah. data out there. Yeah, and you know that's a, that's one of the the selling points. Uh, you know, on replacement windows is the double glazing and the low E gas and all of that. But if I remember my numbers correctly, the energy loss from your walls, doors, windows, and floor all together is only 10% of the typical energy loss in your house. It is pretty much all through the roof. So, you know, if you are, especially if you're talking about one of these old shotguns that doesn't really have insulation, 
um, I actually ran this by the head of sustainability at UNC Chapel Hill, and she agreed that it was a pretty apt comparison. You know, putting super fancy double glazed windows in an old shotgun that hasn't been insulated or anything, it's kind of like putting a bank vault door on a pig pen, you know? (laughs) Um, It's just not where you want to go to get gains in energy efficiency. So, yeah, even from an environmental perspective, um, with historic windows, there are a number of things that you can do to make them more energy efficient. Just using your shutters. Everyone's got these shutters. Well, not everyone, but we have a lot of shutters Mm -hmm. and people don't use them. Mm -hmm. Um, Having curtains on the inside, interior storm windows, those are all things that can, you know, increase your comfort and reduce your, your energy bills without, you know, insulting your house by putting in replacement windows. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I I think, you know, what you mentioned about putting the the vault door on the pig pen is I think a lot of people think that with a historic building that, you know, they can do one or two things. They can, they can replace the windows and maybe put a different door on it and that's going to solve all of their issues. And really it's, it's a myriad of things that comes along with, with buying an old house and all the things that you have to do to it to to make it functional in a, in a modern you know setting, you know of course if 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 I had my way we'd all go back to the way they were originally meant to be and have the doors and windows open you know to get the breeze from the from the river and you know the way things were designed they were not designed to be sort of these hermetically sealed spaces like everybody seems to want to live in now things were meant to be open and breathable. You know, especially in this climate where you have so much humidity, you seal all, you seal it in and then you get all that moisture stuck on the inside of the house and it's just, it's no good for anybody. Um, yeah. So, and, and the same can be said for cemetery tombs as mm-hmm. well. You know, the same, the other projects that you work on. So, yeah. Yeah, modern materials and approaches are not always appropriate for, they frequently are not appropriate for historical homes and other historical materials. And that's some, something that you see here, you know, in New Orleans, especially with the, with the flooding that we have. If you have a home that has original plaster walls mm-hmm. and ceilings, you know, plaster can be dried out and can recover and come back from a flood without, without mold and other issues that you get with different materials. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that's the kind of stuff that you, you know, a lot of people don't consider when they're coming in and tearing out the plaster and, and putting up drywall and especially that Chinese drywall that was such a big problem after Katrina. Yeah. Um, you know, so just, just things to think about when, if you're considering buying or, or, um, you know, picking up a historic home or doing any kind of work on them, you know, consult mm-hmm. your professionals. <laughs> yes, please, please. There's so many resources out there, you know, and, and if you, you know, want to or, or need to for financial reasons to do a lot of the work yourself, please avail yourself of the Preservation Resource Center. Absolutely. And, you know, they have a library and and and, and talk to people and, you know, be judicious and, and use care in, in how you approach your home and, and how you renovate it. Well, on that note, are there any new and exciting projects that you're working on right now? Just got a, you know, got a couple of just kind of plugging around along on window projects uh, might be starting a new one here shortly uh, we have a client who has done much of the work on a house himself and he's looking to sell it and one of the good things is he's really adamant that he wants all of the upper sashes to work properly mm-hmm. um, a lot of people don't care about that but you know 
if we do get to a point and, you know, for environmental reasons, financial reasons, where we can't all afford to cool our houses the way we do, it's important that that upper sash work because if you open the upper sash and the lower sash, then the hot air can go out the top and the cooler air can come in. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how that was supposed to function. And so it's exciting that that's a priority for him because it's a lot of homeowners, they just want to have that upper sash fixed in place because they're never going to open it. Yeah. What about, um, can you tell us some of the weirder things that you've seen um, in, in your years of doing this? So before I got an Instagram, I used to joke that I would start a hashtag called DIY, like W-H-Y, because we do come along things all the time where you just kind of want to go back in time and smack sense into somebody. (laughs) Um, Again, caulk is a big thing. You'll you'll find places where somebody, you know, tried to use caulk as a structural substance and you end up with you know, pulling out this whole rope of of caulk that's like half an inch thick. And I just sort of want to go back and tap somebody gently on the head. Um, So that's a a big one. Interesting things used to keep glass in place, like small nails or other things. You know, plexiglass caulked on top of a window on the outside or from the inside, just all kinds of weird stuff. I've seen places where in a window opening, they took two lower sashes that I assume were not original to the house, flipped one upside down, and just stacked them on top of each other. <laughs> so it's sort of a picture window. It definitely doesn't function at all. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think even a lay person would look at it and think that looks really weird, even if they didn't know what was weird about it. Yeah. So yeah, we uh, we have one of our windows in our apartment has that that plexiglass mm-hmm. to to seal a crack in the window. I yeah, I've seen that one. Definitely, <laughs> yeah. definitely going to have you look at some of the stuff while you're here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think for our last topic, I want to cover is uh, the women in preservation happy hour that we've been working on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the the Women in Preservation Happy Hour was started by Michelle Duhon a few years ago, and I sort of took it over, and now Taylor's going to help me out, which I'm very excited about um, because I enjoy working with other people. And uh, so about once a quarter, we get together with other professionals in the historic preservation sphere, you know, people who work for PRC, architects, um, other tradespeople. And we just get to, you know, sit around and talk about projects and significant buildings that are being restored and and um, share information and uh, that kind of thing. And hopefully we're going to have another one. I'm not sure when this episode is going to drop, but we're hoping to have one coming up in a few weeks. And we're starting a Facebook group. Um, so look out for that. It'll probably be called, what do I call it? Women in Preservation NOLA, I think. Mm-hmm. And we're looking for ways to just improve the sort of events that we offer people and facilitate information sharing. Yeah. So if if you're listening and you're in the New Orleans area, please look us up on Facebook. Or if you come down to the city for a visit or for work, also look us up and give us a shout out. Speaking of Facebook, how can our listeners get in touch with you and what's your social media information? Right now, I'm on Facebook, and I am on Instagram, Vertigree Preservation. On Instagram, it's vertigree.preservation. Vertigree is spelled V-E-R-D-I-G-R-I-S. 
and that's where you can find me as well on Facebook. And my email address is vertigree.preservation at gmail.com. Okay. Well, I hope everyone out there, if you're thinking about doing anything with your windows, will definitely give Sarah a shout. I guess that's about it for our episode today. Thank you so much for being a guest, and uh, we're glad you were able to make it. Thank you for having me. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let us know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. If you would like to get a direct link to our guest's information or just want to give us a shout, you can contact us by visiting our website at preservationdestination.com. There you can check out each show's notes and much more information about the podcast. If you prefer good old-fashioned social media, we are also on Instagram and Facebook as Preservation Destination. Feel free to give us a like and click the follow button to stay informed about upcoming episodes. Again, thank you for being with us, and we hope you'll join us again next time here on Preservation Destination.